Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled About Face. There was a study that I believe NASA did a few years back, and they wanted to find out how long someone could work without a break. Ironically, they discovered it was only six days. When we run out of the fuel of us and realize there's nothing left, where should we turn? Well, we ought to do an about face and recognize that there is only one true source of fuel for the human life. It's the face of God. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. It's sort of hard to describe how this message has been formed, because it's not the typical way, which is a God sense of humor involved in the whole thing. See, I have a pattern throughout the week of how I prepare for a message on Sunday. I'm a I have a very full life, and I have very limited time for anything excess. In fact, let me just put it this way, nothing excess. And preparations for a sermon are part of the things that are guarded in my week. Well, this is a graduation week. It's an unusual week. Everything's a little topsy-turvy. I also left to go to Orlando for two and a half days of it. And so I had my plan. You know, on this long flight there and back, I could work on my sermon. Well, on the way there, it just didn't work. I had to get some notes together and various things for what I was doing. So I still had the way back. On the way back, my battery had some issue in my computer, drained out, and so I didn't have my computer on the way back. Then I got back, you just see God with his little twinkle in his eyes, this whole thing is happening, for whatever reason. See, I hadn't gotten any sleep for a few days, and so I was inordinately tired, and those of you that know me know that I do not get tired. Well, I, have a, I say it this way, I do not accept tiredness, okay? So I'm just defiant towards it. I'm not tired, I'm fine. I'm not tired, I'm fine. Uh, and so I'm driving back from the airport, and I wasn't just tired, but I was, like, physically weak. I couldn't even talk on the phone. You should have heard my conversation with Leslie and with Sandy. I mean, it was just pathetic. I just, I, I just pray for me that I get home. That's, well, that's all I'm thinking about right now. Uh, and so I get home, and my poor kids haven't seen me for, you know, two and a half days, and I'm laying, you know, my head on the counter on my arm, and I'm like, hey, he's going to be fine. Hey, I'm just going to be, going to be fine here. All right, and so I just, I went in, the kids went down for a nap, I went in, took a nap, got back up, you know, just sort of flopped into the chair, this is my one little gap, the kids are still in a nap time, this is my one gap remaining to get a sermon ready, and I'm I'm literally sitting in this chair, my head just, I can't even hold it up, Uh, and I'm like, God, what message am I supposed to get? I start to go through my mind, what am I supposed to do tomorrow, am I supposed to call someone else up at the last minute, just tell them to do it? Uh, which I don't do, okay? And so I'm like, God, I know that you have something. In that moment, in that moment of utter physical weakness, it wasn't like an emotional weakness. I was perfectly happy and fine. I don't, I don't get down in the dumps. But it was a physical weakness, and I didn't have anything. My mind was just blurry. I, that's not normal for me. I'm usually very sharp, and, and I was just not on my game. Let me just put it that way. And I remember sitting in this chair and staring up at the ceiling. And my, the one thing I had studied earlier in the week was the face of God. And I'd been studying all about the face of God. It was a very fascinating study, but it wasn't a sermon. You know, it was just sort of a study, which I do those all the time. Okay, I'm just constantly doing studies. But there's sermons and then there's studies that just sort of grow over time. And then one week I use them. And I felt like the one thing I had studied all week was the one thing God asked of me. You're looking, you're trying to reason your way through this, Eric. You're trying to physically muster up something out of yourself to be ready for tomorrow. Here's what I ask of you. Seek my face. 
That doesn't seem very practical right now. I need a sermon. I need something. I need something to give. Seek my face. So, out of this weakness that I had yesterday came this sermon. It could be called Seek His Face. It could be called The Six Faces of Prayer. I didn't change it in the back. I'm not totally satisfied with my title, but uh, we'll have to work with it. Remember, I didn't have a lot of time here. Uh, About Face. This is a double meaning title because about face is a militaristic term, which I'll explain to you in a second for those of you that don't know. It's also, this message is about the face. And so there's, there's two key themes that are going to uh, be laid out in this message. I am still weak, even as I'm talking. In fact, there's, for those of you that have ever preached, you know that there's this well inside of you. You don't know where to point at, but it's somewhere in your stomach region where when you preach, you exert from something. And if there's nothing there, you go, and out comes a wheeze, okay? But there's still a fight. There's still a fire, but there's no noise that comes out. Even when we were trying to sing earlier today, well, earlier, just a few minutes ago, I literally was trying to dig down into this well, and it was like, awake. Awake, you know, it's just like there wasn't anything there. So that's the Eric Ludi you got dealt today. Okay, so if I start getting loud, you know God's doing something inside my well. If I can't speak above a whisper today, so be it. I'm still going to give this message with all the oomph that is inside of me. If I flop to the floor after I'm done, so be it. About face. This is the definition of the term about face. The total change of attitude or viewpoint. The act of pivoting to face in the opposite direction from the original, especially in a military formation. A military command to turn clockwise 180 degrees. Now, most of us know that. It's the old classic, about face! You know, and the soldiers, <laughs> I've never been a soldier, so I've always dreamed of this. But, uh, and then I don't know how they do it, but there's a way they even turn. I don't know if one of the military guys in here saw me doing it. They'd be like, that is terrible. You know, give me a hundred. You know, that's what they'd say to me. But it's something like, about face. I don't know if they do this time. I'm not sure what they do, but they go, and they go this direction. They turn 180 degrees in military formation. This is a military term. And it's eerily similar to the concept of repent. Isn't that interesting? About face. And so can't you just hear our commander? But it's interesting because the term is about face. The direction of your face defines where you're going. Okay, if your face is aimed in the wrong direction, if you're seeking the wrong thing, your face evidences that. Where your face is directed, so goes the rest of your body. Okay, that's sort of an obvious statement, but that's important here as we begin to talk. Jacob, the heel grabber. I go from about face, this military formation, 180 degrees, and I start talking about Jacob. What is this? The heel grabber. That's what his name means. You know, we, a lot of people name their kids Jacob all the time. It's a good name, good, solid name, but that's what it means. The heel grabber. So you're like, oh, what a beautiful child. I'm going to name you heel grabber. It doesn't just mean heel grabber. It's one who takes hold of the heel, a layer of snares, a supplanter, a deceiver. I love you so much, little one. I'm going to name you Jacob. Isn't that funny? That's what it means. However... There's a profound depth to our understanding of this because Jacob is one in whom 
The desire for God dwells. And yet he doesn't know how to access his God. His face is in the wrong direction. This is the way we all pop out of the womb. We all are Jacob. Jacob is an incredible picture of that which is in all of us. But there is a shift in Jacob's life and he takes on a new name. And what happens in his life is his face turns in the new direction. So we're going to go through Jacob's life. This is a very, very quick overview. For any of you that have gone through Ellerslie, I deal with Jacob all the time because he's an incredible, significant, symbolic character. But we have Rebecca's womb. Rebecca is his mom. And so we have this, this scene. And you notice underneath that I say the heel grabber. This is where he was revealed as the heel grabber. This is truly where his name comes from, Jacob. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red all over like a hairy garment. And they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out. And his hand took hold on Esau's heel. And his name was called Jacob. Well, look at that. He's grabbing the heel. Jacob. You see, from the very beginning of this little boy's life, he was second. He didn't want to be second. You see, the firstborn in the Oriental culture received the blessing or the inheritance from the father. Jacob, for whatever reason, even in the womb, is jostling. And Esau, for whatever reason, is in the position. He's in the position to come out first. Jacob doesn't like that. He wants that first position. He wants that blessing. He wants what comes. In the, this is the inheritance of Abraham, the people of faith. It's a good thing to esteem. What he wants is what Jesus got. Follow me. It's literally the inheritance of the firstborn. It's Jesus. And what Jacob sees is what he's after. And so to get it, he grabs the heel of Esau. Esau, by the way, without me going into any depth in this, you're going to just have to trust me with this one. You could test me. Do a little Berean test on this. Is an incredibly picturesque view of the flesh in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you have this concept of the flesh and the spirit. In the Old Testament, you don't have those same exact terms. You do, but it's not used the same way. The New Testament is unveiling what happened in the Old Testament in just an incredibly beautiful way. There's a firstborn and there's a secondborn. For instance, we have Adam, who's the firstborn man, and then we have the last Adam, Jesus. First, second. The first one failed. The second one rescued. Okay, we have Cain, Abel. Cain, firstborn, flesh. Abel, secondborn. They're at enmity with each other. Cain kills Abel. Okay? Then you have Ishmael, Isaac, who's the firstborn. Ishmael, born of the flesh. Product of Hagar, self-solution. Who's the second? Product of supernatural grace at work, Isaac. And then you have Esau, Jacob. Exact same thing. The first one, Esau, self-sufficient. This guy's the hairy hunter. He's cunning for hunting. I mean, he's good at this stuff, and he has hair all over his chest, or all over his body, technically. Isn't that exciting to think about? Uh, so we have this, this picture throughout the Bible, and then you have Saul David. The first one is head and shoulders above all of Israel. The second one is the eighth son of Jesse. I mean, even Jesse didn't consider him king material, didn't even invite him to the party. And that's who God chooses. God chooses the one that doesn't look the part. You know what it says of Jacob? He was a plain man dwelling in tents. It's one of the most pathetic descriptions of a man I've ever heard in my entire life. And God says, he has what I'm looking for. 
That guy right there, the secondborn. What? Secondborn? You mean Esau? Esau's the firstborn God. I just want to correct you on that. No, no, no. Not Esau. That one. You, the guy in the tent with his mom? The pale-faced one doesn't look like he ever gets out and see the sun. Got to be kidding. He's weak. But he esteems something. He esteems the inheritance. He esteems it. You see this all throughout his life. So, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called one who takes hold of the heel, a supplanter, a deceiver, a layer of snares. The bowl of red stew, classic stories. I mean, even when we're growing up in you know, the church, we learn these stories. But this is his picture of being a layer of snares. He's, this guy's cunning, and he proves this throughout his life. If you study the life of Jacob, this guy is always up to something, and it's usually self-serving, okay? He's a layer of snares, and Jacob sawed pottage. Uh, he's making some pottage, okay? I don't know what sod is, but uh, it's fascinating. And Esau came from the field and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Can't you just see Jacob setting this whole thing up? It's like he's, hmm, you know, all right, I got the red stuff here. And uh, Esau's coming and he's hungry. And Jacob said, well, sell me this day thy birthright. He's after that birthright. He wants what the firstborn gets. And Jacob said, swear to me this day. And he swore unto him. And then he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils. And he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. That Jacob. He's a layer of snares. He takes advantage of the weakness of Esau. And tries to take what only Esau has. However, the funny thing about I'm sorry, Jacob is no matter what he does here, you'll realize he's not satisfied with it. Okay, so he cons, you know, he grabs the heel, doesn't, doesn't do him any good. What's he grabbing? He's grabbing the heel of the flesh. He's trying to gain through the flesh that which cannot be gained through the flesh. And what's he trying to con? The flesh. He's like, you have what I want. But the flesh doesn't give him anything. The birthright, even though he technically got it, he still has not given him anything. And so still, after all these years... Jacob is still not satisfied. He doesn't have something. He's missing something. There's a hole. Usurping Isaac's blessing. Firstborn would get the blessing from that father. And so that day comes where the blessing is going to be given. And Rebecca, who favored Isaac, this isn't the healthiest family, by the way, uh, overhears her, her father send Esau out into the field to get some venison. And so she whips out her own venison, cooks it up the way she knows Isaac likes it, and gives it to Jacob to go in and deceive her father and to get the blessing. The problem is, Esau's hairy. Isaac's a plain man dwelling in tents. He's just as bald as a baby, okay? He doesn't have anything to prove him a man. And so they dress him up in some type of goat skin. This is one of the weirdest stories in the Bible, I have to admit. Because either Isaac's an idiot, or this is divinely conspired, okay? And God has something to do with this, because it doesn't make any sense. I'll read you the story. This is him being the supplanter, the deceiver. And Rebekah took goodly raiments of her eldest son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them upon Jacob, her younger son. And she gave the savory meat and the bread, which she had prepared, into the hands of her son Jacob. And Jacob said unto her, his father, I am Esau, thy firstborn. You devil. Are you serious? You just lied to your dad. 
Jacob will do whatever it takes to get that blessing. That's how much he esteems it. Now, is God esteeming the way he's going at it? No. God's not endorsing this behavior, and he proves it because he doesn't get anything. He has a blessing from his father, but he's still unsatisfied in his life. And you'll see in the upcoming chapters, there's still a blessing missing. And he didn't get it. Something is still absent in his spiritual life. Where am I? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, thy firstborn. I have done according as thou bid me. Arise, I pray thee, sit and eat of my venison, that thy soul may bless me. And Isaac said unto Jacob, Come near, I pray thee, that I may feel thee, my son, whether thou be my very son Esau or not. And Jacob went near unto Isaac his father, and he felt him and said, Hmm, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Remember he had that like goat stuff, you know, on him. How hairy was Esau? (laughs) And it came to pass as soon as Isaac had made an end of blessing Jacob, and Jacob was yet scarce gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. And Esau said, is not he rightly named Jacob? That is actually what Esau says. Is he not rightly named? That deceiver! That supplanter! That heel grabber! He's up to no good. He always has been up to no good. For he hath supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he hath taken away my blessing. You see, the key with Jacob is he esteemed what God had to give. You see, this isn't just any birthright, and this isn't just any blessing that he's after. He is after the blessing that was given to his great-grandfather, or his grandfather, Abraham. That blessing that was given was that his seed, his sons, his descendants would be as the sand of the seashore as the stars in the heavens. Literally, that he would be built into a nation, and he would be blessed that they might be a blessing to all the other nations. This isn't just any ordinary birthright. This isn't any ordinary blessing. And Esau could care less. He despises it. He's self-sufficient. He has all he needs in and of himself. But Jacob knows, I'm a plain man. I've got nothing. I need that birthright. Esau's got all the talent. He's got all the hair, obviously. I need what he has. He doesn't care about it. Let me have it. Let me have it. He wants the right thing. He just didn't know how to get it. You know how many of us as Christians, it's exactly right? That's us. We're Jacob. We're heel grabbers. We're trying to manipulate our flesh. Manipulate our old man saying, come on, you're going to serve Jesus. Okay? Get your act together. I don't want you doing that lust thing anymore. I'm sick and tired of you getting all fearful and anxious. Okay? We're going to have a pure mind now. We're not going to live like the rest of the reprobates out there. We're going to do it right. We're going to show God that we mean business. And guess what? Grabbing the heel of Esau does nothing for you. Tricking Esau out of the birthright does nothing for you. Conning Isaac does nothing for you. You're still, I mean, he has to flee. Esau vows to kill him. Jacob has to leave everything. He has to leave Canaan. He's, he's on his own. He's not that happy, by the way. Okay? He doesn't have an easy life up to this point. Even the next 10, 20 years of his life are not easy. They're hard fought. And there is something missing in this man's life. 
And if you see that same something missing in your life, you could have the right heritage, the right parentage. You could have the right things that you esteem, but something is still missing in your life. Israel, the God grabber. See, there's a contrast that we're going to make. Something happened in Jacob's life. He was headed in the wrong direction. And suddenly one night, God grabbed him. I don't even want to say that he grabbed God. Let's just make it very clear. God grabbed him, spun him around and says, I know what you're after. And then suddenly he awakened and he saw it. He saw that is where the blessing comes from. The blessing doesn't come from Esau. The blessing doesn't come from Isaac. The blessing comes from God. And once he saw it, he wouldn't let go. And it says he wrestled with God through the night until the breaking of day. He would not let go. Once he saw where it was coming from, where the source was, where the fountain was, then he would not, he could not let go. This was his heart's desire. Even God knew it. And he gave him the opportunity to find it. Israel. You know, the name Israel is the name that is given to every single one of us that truly have grabbed a hold of God. That's how you get the name. You don't really want to end up with the name Jacob. But Jacob is the predecessor name to the name Israel. It's the name that is the spark. It's the name that leads us. It's the name that cultivates and churns the desire. This is whatever I must do, I must have that. That's where we're all at. We need a Jacob in us instead of an Esau. That's self-sufficiency. If we have a Jacob, praise God, I know we don't have anything yet, but we have the right heart to say, I need that, I need that, I need that, I need that, I need that. God, please, somehow, some way, I must have it. And we're looking everywhere for it, grabbing a hold of heels everywhere. Conning whoever we can con to say, please, I, I must have that. And then one day God grabs a hold of us, turns us around about face and says, it's in me, right here. The God grabber. We'll go into that in just a second. Now, let's go through this story. Is, Jacob is, he cons his brother. He deceives his dad. And guess what? Things aren't going very well uh, back at the home front uh, for, uh, for Isaac and his homestead. Jacob has to run, has to flee. Because Isaac, who's a very powerful, hairy man, has decided that he is going to kill him. Okay? So Jacob flees. And... He's there for, I forgot the exact length of time, but it's somewhere around 20 years. The call to the promised land. And the Lord said unto Jacob, or let me, let me add my amplified version. The Lord said unto one who takes hold of the heel, a supplanter, a deceiver, a layer of snares, return unto the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee. See, God's a part of this man's life. He's been leading him, he's been protecting him. But he knows that, Jacob is looking in the wrong place for the satisfaction of his soul. So he says, come. Come to the land of promise. You know, this is what he does to every single one of us. We're heel grabbers in the wilderness. We have Jesus at some level. We've escaped out of Egypt at some level. We're miserable. The wilderness is full of a baking hot sun and a lot of sand. Sure, we have a little manna. We have a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. You know, we're not complaining here. Our shoes aren't wearing out. But at the same time, there's a restlessness in our soul. Is this all? Is this all there is? I know there must be more. I mean, I got the birthright. I got 
I got Isaac's blessing. I mean, I've dotted I's and crossed T's. I should be satisfied, but something is eating away at our souls. Something isn't right. There must be more. Come. Come back to the land of your fathers. Come back to the land of promise. Come back to Canaan. It's the call for all of us. You'll see this call over and over and over again in the Bible. Come back to the land. And what is God saying? I will be with thee. The place of weakness. This is why this message is so significant for me, especially since I'm sitting in a white chair, staring up at the ceiling, without an ounce of strength in my body. And God says, seek my face. And suddenly this story awakened at a whole other level to me. The place of weakness. Jacob is on his way back. He has a problem. Between him, his wives and children, by the way, he has, he has wives, children, and a whole bunch of cattle, donkeys, uh, horses, you know, things like that. It's like, that isn't a powerful force. And guess who stands between him and the land of promise? <clears throat> a guy named Esau. Esau with his 400 armed men. Does this sound familiar in your life too? It's like God says, no, I want to give you more. The first thing you see in all your weakness, because you're, you're realizing how pathetic you are. That's what is coming to you. It's like, I can do nothing. God, I'm, I keep resolving to live, to serve you, to show you to this world, but I don't have it in me. And so you're surrounded by your wives and your kids and your donkeys and your cattle and your sheep. Jacob is at a place of weakness. He's staring at his greatest obstacle, the flesh. He has no answer for it. No answer. What is he going to dig down inside and pull out? He doesn't have any weaponry. He's standing against literally the hairy flesh. And he has nothing. Until you come to this point, which is oftentimes referred to as the dark night of the soul, you're not ready to find the strength. God brings us to a point of weakness. And he gladly brings us there. He lovingly guides us there. We're like, God, I'm getting weaker. This can't be you. I'm getting weaker. I don't feel like I can carry this anymore. God, now I got right at the point of greatest weakness. I have my greatest obstacle. He says, now you'll realize that you need to turn outside of yourself to find the solution. You see, as long as we have that little measure of strength, you know, that little oomph, that well to dig down into, guess who we'll turn to? We'll turn to ourselves. We'll turn to our well. I got the stuff, God, don't worry. And we have it. But God brings us to our end where our well is dry. Ourselves. We have no more confidence in ourselves. I don't have it, God. I don't have it, but I need it right now. He says, I got you right where I want you. Turn to me. Whips us about face and says, right here, seek my face. This is what happens to Jacob. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, unto the land of Seir, the country of Edom, which is basically Esau's country. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to thy brother Esau, and also he comes to meet thee, and 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Talk about destitution. The guy has nothing. I mean, he has no place to turn. He's called to one singular place. Guess what he can hold on to in this? God said he'd be with me. That's the one rock he has left because he has nothing. 
And his arch nemesis, his arch rival, his arch foe is standing there in between him and where God's called him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed and he divided the people that was with him, that were with him, it should say, uh, even though that is what it says in the Bible. I'm just correcting it. And the flocks, herds, and the camels into two bands. So he divides it into two bands because if Esau takes one, the other one can get away. I mean, he's literally looking at worst case scenario here of how this is going to unfold. And said, if Esau come to the one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which said unto me, Return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. And Jacob was left alone. And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint. As he wrestled with him and said, let me go. So this, this God man, whatever this is, God, as we will soon see, because that's what Jacob literally testifies, that he saw God face to face. So he's wrestling with this man. This man seems to have chosen Jacob. Hey, get over here and grabs a hold of Jacob. I almost see this about face. Jacob's alone in the night, woefully crying out. God flips him around and says, it's time you learn the secret. Grabs a hold of him, face to face, nose to nose. Do you see it, Jacob? Jacob's wrestling. Have you ever, you know, if any of the moms in here, you know this. I don't know, it's a mom sort of thing. Look me in the eye. And my mom would always say that. What does it mean if your mom is looking at you and she wants to tell you something and you act like you're not hearing it? And you're looking away. What are you saying? You're showing defiance. You're saying, I don't want to hear what you have to say. See, the face is a very important thing. And every mom knows it. Of course, every dad does too. It's just moms that seem to say that line. At least my mom did. That was like her specialty line. No, Eric, look me in the eye. I don't like what you're doing with your eyes. Like, I didn't say anything. I can see it in your eyes. You can read someone through their face. And get this. You can read God through his face. But guess what? You have to make yourself vulnerable to look at him. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you, he says. Right here. In my eyes. And guess what you see? You see truth. And that truth sometimes hurts. That truth sometimes knocks your right hip out of joint and now for the rest of your life you have a limp to this world. It doesn't look too cool. That truth sets you free. We must turn to face our God. This is the secret in our weakness. Not to try and drum up out of our wives and, and children and flock the strength to overcome our obstacles. We don't have it. We might as well just admit it right now. He has it. it says, let me go for the day breaks. And he said, I will not let thee go. This is Jacob speaking. I will not let thee go except thou Bless me. You have it. You have it. See, this is the great moment in Jacob's life. And God even recognizes it too. What is thy name? And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. Heel grabber. It's like the testimony that we need to have of our life. I'm a heel grabber. I'm a supplanter. I'm a deceiver. I'm a layer of snares. And I'm nothing good. God, you have no business dealing with me. 
But for some reason, you've caught my attention. You're the one that's speaking to me. So I can't let go of you until I get what you have. And he said, thy name shall no more be called Jacob, but Israel. Where did he get his name? When he grabbed a hold of God and wouldn't let go. Grabs a hold of the heel, he gets his name Jacob. Grabs a hold of God, gets the name Israel. You want the secret to being grafted into Israel. To be one of God's children, be a descendant, true descendant of, of Abraham. To truly participate in the birthright and the inheritance. You grab a hold of God and you don't let go. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. What does that mean? The face of God. That's what it means. Jacob encountered the face of God. Grabbed a hold of God. And learned from that God's face. Peniel, the face of God. The turn in weakness. When you're weak, there's something you turn to. Some of us have been well-trained to turn to the medicine cabinet, to turn to our supplements, our herbs, our herbal remedies. Uh, Leslie has a great smoothie uh, that has a tendency to uh, spark my uh, energy levels. Uh, oftentimes when we're out on a date, she'll say, we're getting a chai for you. That's what she'll say because I'm like starting to get like, yeah, I'm listening, I'm listening. We're getting a chai for you. And I'm like, oh, I don't need a chai. Hey, I'm here. I'm fully present. That's like her threat uh, for me. <laughs> if I have to have a chai instead of God, that's like a bad thing. Uh, but the turn in weakness, there is something that we oftentimes turn to. Sometimes it's our own brainstorming. We've got a bad situation. What do we do? Start turning it over in our head. I need to solve this one. I need to solve this one. You know, I want you to realize weakness can be your greatest friend or it can be your greatest enemy. Some of us detest weakness. We detest trial. We detest difficulty. Why? Because we fail in it. Because we keep turning to Esau. We keep grabbing a heel. We keep trying the con game. It's failing us. All it's doing is making us weaker and weaker and more dissatisfied. But your weakness can be your greatest asset in your spiritual life if you handle it properly. And to handle it properly, you need to know how to turn in weakness. Jacob is weak. What does he need? He needs the face of Jesus Christ. He needs the face of the man. The ishi. It's the word. The ish. The man. Grab a hold of the man. Jesus. That's the great secret for Jacob to become Israel. Sick and tired of being the supplanter? So am I. Grab a hold of the man. The turn in weakness. Turning toward the face of God instead of the face of man. Most of us, we run to people. And we look in their face for counsel. Because that's what the face symbolizes. It's one of the dimensions. It's counsel. Come to me. I'll tell you. I mean, the face involves the mouth. It involves the eyes, the compassion. I mean, this is what we want. We want someone to empathize with us. We're weak. Someone who will help create sort of a, a stir to our self-pity. And will justify it in us. Don't turn that way. Don't turn to the face of man. Turn to the face of God. I love the story of Steve Camp. Uh, he was sharing the gospel on some street corner. And he got beat up for it. And he was being discipled by Keith Green. He came to Keith Green 
and was crying. He was like, they beat me up. They beat me up. And he says, you should be rejoicing right now. You see, when you turn to the right face, the face of a Christian who is constantly staring in the face of God, you know what you get? You get God's response. And so it's not bad to have a face and to interact with people. It's just that our face needs to show God's expression and his countenance and give his response. Turning toward faith in God's strength rather than faith in man's natural strength. See, some of us just have been dealt a lot of natural strength. And we can just go longer and harder than most other people around us. We're smarter than other people around us. Therefore, we can lean on our own abilities, our own stuff, more than other people. And so we look at these other people sort of failing on the side, and we're like, you know what? Weak. Weakness! And we can go that extra mile. Well, guess what? God's going to have to bring us that extra mile and get us to the point where we can't carry our pack anymore either. Because as long as you think you have the solution in your life and that you can keep going, that you can please God by digging down deep into your well, by grabbing that heel of your flesh and saying, I got it. I got it by the tail. It's not going anywhere. You're not pleasing God. And you're actually doing a disservice to your own soul. You're falling apart. You have no supernatural strength. The key is to turn towards faith in God's strength. You know, when I was seeking God's face, I know it sounds funny. How do you seek God's face? I was sitting in my white chair, you know, flopped back, no strength. And I was looking in his face. You know what I got? That's where my confidence is. This is what I was thinking as I was sitting there. You're strong. You're strong and you're never weak. Praise God that I have you. Because if this was up to me, I'm pathetic. Look at me. I can't even move. Can't serve my children right now. I'm not able to do anything for my wife. My wife's been, I had me gone two and a half days. I come back to help her and I can't do anything. I'm pathetic. But you're not. You're my strength. And somehow in this weakness, I'm gaining strength by focusing on you. I don't yet feel it in my body, but I feel it in my soul. Because you live within me. And you are all that I could ever need. And greater is he that is in me, even in this weakened condition, than he that is in this world. See, in my weakness, I found a strength. But I didn't find it in me. I didn't try and drum it up. I accepted the fact that I, okay, I can't move here, God. But I'm going to seek you, the one who can move. And I'm going to rest all my confidences upon you right now. And guess what? Pretty soon... I'm standing up. You know what I felt? If I was going to say God spoke to me anything in all of this, it was get up and live as if you have strength. My knees are knocking. I'm walking around. And boy, I didn't feel like I had any strength. And I'm walking around and I'm praying. And I'm, I mean, all of it kept looking at my white chair going, that looks really comfortable right now. <laughs> Took a couple hours and pretty soon, you know what? I'm not feeling that good right now. And my brain is still fuzzy, but I'm walking. And pretty soon I sat down. Uh, we had company coming over and they were an hour delayed. So I sat down and began to work on this message. And it came out of weakness that I found strength, but not in me, in him. Oh, look at that scripture. I'm not the only one that has said that, am I? My strength is made perfect in weakness. What kind of weird statement is that? You see... God's strength, speaking of God's strength, is made perfect in and through our weakness. Don't just criticize your weakness. Don't just try and cast it off. Allow it and say, God, take this and use this 
as your fodder in my life to build even a greater strength and a greater confidence. For when I am weak, this is a strange statement, then I am strong. You willing to become weak so you can get the true strength? Not your strength, his strength. Yeah, I want his strength. Well, then are you willing to allow him to make you weak? I don't don't like these terms. That's the secret of true strength. Listen to this. In 2 Corinthians 1, it uses the word comfort, okay? And the word comfort, to be honest, doesn't quite do it for most of us, okay? So what I did is I gave us the amplified version. Every time it uses comfort here, which is a load of times, I give you the expanded version of comfort, which means encouragement, instruction, and strength. Now, that just is a bigger concept than comfort, all right? Comfort just sounds like God's putting his arm around his, our shoulder and going, oh, poor thing. That's not what God gives us. God gives us, it's like a whole needle full of, uh, I was going to say testosterone, but for some of the women in here, that might not, uh, <laughs> adrenaline, that's the word I'm looking for. Okay, not testosterone, even though some of us guys could use that too. But uh, liquid adrenaline just pumped right in. That's what God gives us. We face sufferings. We face difficulties. He injects right into our heart everything we need to face them. Okay, so listen to this. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So he's the God of all of what this is. He's the God of all encouragement, instruction, and strength. Isn't that exciting? That's why we seek his face. Who comforts, that means who encourages, instructs, and strengthens us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to, get this, that we may be able to encourage, sorry, there's not a comma there, instruct and strengthen them which are in any trouble. So, God leverages our weakness, strengthens, encourages, and teaches us and instructs us in those moments. Why? So that then we have what is needed to instruct and encourage and strengthen those around us that are weak. Oh, this is exciting. By the comfort, and how do we do it? We do this. How do we give that comfort to others? By the divine encouragement, instruction, and strength, wherewith we ourselves are encouraged, instructed, and strengthened of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so are, and I don't know why they changed the word to consolation here. It's basically the same concept, same word. So our encouragement, instruction, and strength also abounds, which means increases, overflows, and exceeds all expectation and measurement by Christ. The more weakness you have, the more strength you get in your life. Seems like a funny statement. Well, if I'm just getting weakness, how in the world am I getting strength? You'll understand when you start getting it. You could be hit on all sides. You could face trials and tribulations beyond all measure. And guess what? (laughs) Hercules! Inside your soul! An indomitable, unbreakable, unbendable substance in your soul that is able to laugh in the face of it. Respond with joy and peace in the midst of it. Who wouldn't want that? That's God's comfort. God's comfort in the most dire of situations. But when do you get it? Well, well, you get it in your weakness. And most of us are like, well, I don't want it then. Oh, you want it. This is life and life abundant. If you're going to make it through this life, you need this stuff. You need this comfort from God. But the way to get it is you have to make yourself vulnerable to allow God to make you weak. And I don't just mean physically weak. This was just an illustration that God was giving me for today. 
prefer God just telling me as opposed to making me weak like that. However, I'll take it. I laughed all last night about this. I was like, this is amazing. I literally just lived out a message. And that's the way it should be. Peniel, the face of God. You could say, well, you already had that slide. Well, I know. Last time I said it, it was a location, a geographical location. That's the way most of us look at Peniel. Oh, that's that's a place in Israel. No, it's an actual place. It's the face of God. And that's where we must go. We don't need to go to Israel and hold on to some man in the physical realm to find what Jacob found. The face of God is before all of us. The problem is most of us need to do an about face. We're looking at the wrong thing. We're staring at our circumstances. We're staring at the impossibilities. And we're not staring at the face of our God. The face of God in Scripture is defined in multiple ways, and this is a very, very skimpy study on it. I would encourage all of us in here to go into a greater in-depth study. But it's the place of petition and rescue. When you come to the face of God, you're saying, God, I need help. God, you have something I need. And so let's look at that. And hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. If God's hiding his face, what's he doing? He's saying, you're on your own, buddy. You're on your own. You don't have any help from God. Oh, no, don't, don't do that to me. I need your face. I need your face. I'm in trouble. Hear me speedily. Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. If God's face is shining, guess what? Salvation is the natural result. It's rescue. Hide not thy face from me in the day when I am in trouble. Incline thine ear unto me in the day when I call. Answer me speedily. It's the place of sustaining life. If God's face is shining on your life, you have life. Your life is sustained. If his face is turned away, you know what hell is? It's not being any longer in the sunshine of his face. He is turned away. And I tell you what, there's no more greater darkness than that. Thou hidest thy face, they are troubled. Thou takest away their breath, they die and return to their dust. Uh, yeah, we, we don't want that. Lord, why cast thou off my soul? Why hidest thou thy face from me? Hear me speedily, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not thy face from me, lest I be like unto them that go down into the pit. It's also the place of mercy and truth. Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. It's the place of instruction. Make thy face to shine upon thy servant, And teach me thy statutes. Remember what comfort was? It was encouragement, strength, and instruction. It's the face of God. The comfort is found in the face of God. Now, let me give you an illustration. Bombs are dropping. Okay, now we've never had this happen in America where bombs are dropping and little kids are starting to wonder what's going on outside. That doesn't sound like thunder. The parents usually know a little more than the kids. And they have to choose how they're going to respond. If they're controlled by fear and anxiety, you know what begins to happen? Oh, no, 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 no. Bombs are falling. And what happens to the kids? The kids look into the face of their parents, and what do they see? They see panic, anxiety, and fear. And what do the kids naturally adopt? The same face. You see, a child adopts the face of their parent. If their parent is all calm, Confident? Oh, isn't... You see, there are big, meanie people out there that want to hurt other big, meanie people. But we're surrounded 
by Jesus Christ. We're a, he's a shield about us. And so even though bad things are happening, we're safe in Jesus. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, that's exciting. All right, let's go to bed. And while we're going to bed, if you ever hear a bomb during the night and it wakes you up, just pray for them. Pray for the people would be protecting the people dropping the bombs would stop. In other words, your countenance is confident. Now, let me ask you this question. If you ever stare up at the face of God, are you ever going to see panic or fear? Isn't that interesting? There's seven facial expressions that have been universally denoted to the human face. Panic, fear, are two of them. Two of the seven. There was another one. I forgot what it was. Uh, but it, I should have written them down. I should have had it in there. I almost put it in. Uh, but there's, I think, well, maybe it's just two out of it. That God does not show. In other words, God is not a man that he should lie. There are certain behavioral patterns that we have. But here's what I want you to realize. As a Christian, never have fear on your countenance. Never have panic on your countenance. Why? Because you're a child of God. If it's not on his countenance, it's not on yours. That's of this earth, not of heaven. See, the secret to Christianity is we behold our God. And we see his face. If bombs are dropping, you know what we as parents do? We look up at heaven. And we say, God, what are you thinking right now? What are you saying? What are you looking like? What's your countenance say? And he says, be still and know that I am God. The nations are as a drop in the bucket. I am in control. All things bend at my word. I thought so. Just checking. That's our devotional life right there. What's God's face on the matter? Seeking his face. What is his countenance on the matter? In every situation of life, this is what you do daily. You go to your king and you study his face. You see, God has different facial expressions. It's not just one. He has multiple facial expressions. And what I'm about to describe isn't the gamut. But what I am going to describe is how when we see his face, we take it on ourselves. And what it results in is what we can call prayer. Okay? Prayer is the response to seeing God's face. When you see God's face, you respond accordingly in this natural realm and you say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we say. That's the will of heaven. It's on his face. This is what he wants. Ezekiel saw anger in God's face. Saw God was seeing abominations. They were abominations in the temple of God. The God of jealousy, Tammuz, was literally seated where his rightful spot was. And, God, and Ezekiel saw it. He saw God's anger. And guess what? Ezekiel turned and in this natural realm dealt the same thing out. A prophet sees the face of God and then turns towards the people and delivers what is on God's face in and through his own face. What is his countenance on the matter? Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. See his many crowns. When you stare at God, just, just imagine this. First of all, Jesus is called the head of the church. So it's his face that we bear. Think about that. Whose face do you have? Well, if he's your head, you have his face. So what is his face? I want you just to look at your king. Okay, I'm not him, by the way. So that was a, when I give an illustration as if you're supposed to look at me. However, I'm demonstrating a face. What's on his head? Many crowns. Authority upon authority upon authority. He's the king of all kings. Sometimes that's all you need to see. 
Just a quick glance. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. (laughs) He's over all. All things are under his feet. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. King of kings, Lord of lords. That should be sufficient. However, just keep looking down. Forehead. It's an adamant firmer than any. I'm sorry. It's an adamant firmer than flint. It's diamond. It's uncuttable, unbreakable. That's resolve. He will not be pushed back. His ends will be gained. Also, you could call it the mind of Christ. What's his mind on the matter? Turn to the word of God and you can see. He has spoken it. It's eternal. It's timeless. It's changeless. He has spoken. His mind is already expressed. He has already dealt out his opinion on the matter. We go to the word of God and we can know it. And that's one of the ways we seek his face is by seeking the word. Because it's his face. It's his mind. It's his word. It's the sharp sword that comes out of his mouth. When we look at the word of God, we're seeing his face. How about his eyes? What are his eyes saying? Are they compassionate? Because that tells you something. There are oftentimes we come to God and go, God, strike that one down. And what do, what do we see? A tear streaming down his face. He says, I love them, Eric. I'm asking you to forgive them and to go wash their feet. You're right. His face defines our face. It could be anger. You see that brow line of God is a great defining factor. Have you ever noticed that when you're writing, if any of you are artists, uh, eyebrows uh, are one of the most critical dimension of gaining the true expression of a face. Well, look at God's brow line. You can tell what he's about, what he wants in a situation. Study his face on the matter. Are his eyes full of fire? Are they full of joy? If they're full of joy, you know what? Just do a little jig. It's okay. It's okay. If, if God is dancing, dance. Okay, it might be a little awkward for you. I'm a terrible dancer, okay? So it's awkward for me. I, when I dance with my kids, you should see it. You know, they, they laugh at my dance. So it's just a humorous thing in the house. But you know what? Uh, you know, I'm sure God is a great dancer. Isn't that a funny thought? God dances? Well, you know what? He, I think he came up with dancing. So, and we're created in his image, so I'm guessing he dances, even though it seems a little undignified. Uh, but look at God's eyes. Determine your eyes. In and through what his are. What are they looking at? Where's his gaze? Watch. Follow it. It's on that little one there. That abandoned one. It's on that straggler over here that's left out of the inner circle. God's looking there. And by looking at his face, you're seeing where he's looking. You follow the, the, his eyesight and guess what? You'll be where he, he wants you to be. That's where he is. And that's where he wants you to be. His mouth. See his mouth. And the mouth is... Such a rich and picturesque location on the human face. If there's a smile on his face, guess what? That tells you a lot. You know, you can hear things out of that mouth. In Revelation, it describes a sharp sword coming out of that mouth. He's going to bring judgment on the nations. So what's coming out of that mouth defines a lot. In Song of Solomon, it says, kiss me with the kisses of thy mouth. You need to realize he's the consuming fire of Almighty God. That's literally a coal from the fire pressed against your lips, and it will convict you of sin. You see his mouth, you see the purity of his lips, and guess what? It will show you the impurity of yours. Are you willing to look at that mouth? Because he only speaks words of life. He only speaks words of truth. But your mouth has been profaned. You see his mouth, and he begins to show you, your mouth is not like my mouth. But I would like to give you my mouth. His chin... It's sort of that statement of resolution. It's the fixed, 
rock-like chin of God. You see his face, and you'll know what your face ought to look like. The six faces of prayer, when his face becomes our face. Okay, so I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through six faces of prayer. This, the, where, where this comes out of is a conversation that I've been having with Sandy and Nick Thompson in regards to a prayer college that we're starting. And this was one of my little side studies that I was doing in regards to what are the different dimensions, and Nick has been spending time on this too, so this is like a collaboration, of what are the different dimensions of prayer, the different umbrella categories for prayer. And so what we're calling it in this message is the six faces of prayer. You see God's face, and guess what? You now know what to do in this world. You now know what to pray, because prayer is taking God's agenda, His countenance, His will, and articulating it down here. Thy will... And what you have on your face may it be accomplished on this earth as it is on your face in heaven. That's what it is. That's what prayer is. And so this is us adopting his face in prayer. And these are six ways that you'll see in Scripture we're commanded to do that. I always like things like this. The snarl. I was doing a study on the snarl and I, I cut it out. I had it in my notes originally. But the name of the snarl muscle, it's the longest name of any muscle in the body. It's like six words long. Uh, but another term for it is the Elvis muscle. Uh, this is like, I guess he used to snarl a lot. I'm not sure how to, I don't snarl, but. Uh, I don't know what I just looked like, but I'm sure it looked really good. Uh, the snarl. You know that there's actually a snarl on God's face at times? Not always. Well, maybe I should say these probably are always, always coexisting. It's just always there, but God wants to reveal to us a certain attribute that we need to partake of in the moment. But the snarl, what's it? God snarls? He holds in contempt. He hates certain things. Isn't that an incredible thought? He hates sin. Says it. I didn't come up with it. Our God of love hates sin. The snarl against the darkness and a snarl for the rescue of the darkened trapped in the dark places. There are those that are darkened in their sin. They don't see it. And we have a snarl against that which is puppeteering them. That which is holding them captive. And we will not take no for an answer. Like Samson, we will take the gates of Gaza, the gates of hell, rip them off their hinges, and let the oppressed go free. It's a snarl. That's our face, because that's his face. And when we turn in prayer after seeing his face, we use that one muscle, about six words long. I should have given us the name for it. That would be a fun thing for our prayer college. We'd have to all memorize the name of the, uh, the muscle, the snarl muscle. Because Elvis muscle just doesn't sound very sanctified. Uh, this is David with a snarl on his face. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And then he uh, went out to collect five smooth stones and take down that Philistine. Welcome to your prayer life. That's it. The snarl against the powers of darkness controlling the restricted hostile countries. The snarl against the puppeteering forces holding the lost in dark chains of ignorance and rebellion. The snarl against the strong man, the spiritual pugnacity necessary to resist the devil. Okay, now imagine a prayer college where all six of these faces were constantly represented every day. And that we had men and women that would adopt these facial expressions spiritually and lead the rest of the troops in praying over these things. It's just one category. The determined gaze. Imagine beholding the face of God and you see him saying with a resolute confidence, this will be done. 
a determined resolve to serve the light already shining in the dark places and the yearning for more light to shine. The other one, the snarl was against darkness. This is for light. Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them, as them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. There is a burden upon the souls of the saints of God. We must not forget them. They're out there and they're laboring for the truth of the gospel. And we can't forget. Look at God's face. He sees them. If you follow his gaze, he's looking at North Korea. And he's saying, do you see my men and women that are on the ground? Don't forget them. A determined resolve to remember those in bonds, to serve them, to wash their feet, to bring them a cup of cool water. A determined resolve to fight for the persecuted church, to supply them our prayer. A determined resolve to undergird the missionaries already on the ground, already working in these dark corners. A determined resolve to see even more laborers raised up and sent forth. It's what we're commanded to pray. The God of the harvest would raise up laborers for the harvest. We pray this. We pray it diligently. Why? Because it's on his face. This is what he is asking. This is what he's praying. God prays. I know that sounds strange. He ever lives to make intercession for us. God is pleading. But those pleadings are meant to be overheard by the saints of God. Why? So that it would be enacted down here. God is telling us what he wants to see happen. But who's listening? Prayer is all based on the fact that we don't pray our own prayers, our Esau prayers, our heel-grabbing prayers. We pray God's prayers. Grab a hold of him and say, what do you want? And then he tells us, and we do not let go until it happens. The face of supplication. Supplication for the ruling powers that be, for the powers that will be. I exhort, therefore, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. We are literally called to offer up supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and a giving of thanks for kings. And I, you need to realize when this was given. This is not in the days of a Republican-controlled Congress. It's in the days of Emperor Caesars that fed Christians to the beasts. Give thanks? What? Uh, did I hear, hear that correctly? That doesn't sound right. We're supposed to be praying for them. This is on God's face. If you look at his face, you'll see it. He cares. And he wants us to be engaged in these things. Some men he wants to uproot and get out. Some he wants to prepare and put in. Are we praying for them? You know that there are leaders in this world, future leaders, that are not yet defined in the natural realm. But they're being formed right now. Are you participating? Are you seeing what's on God's face? He wants to raise someone up. Are we participating in the prayer? Are we just dealing with what's by sight? Yeah, there's, there's leaders out there that we can see, and God might want some of them out. But he also might want new ones in. We were talking at, uh, I think it was Wednesday prayer of last week, that the, the I can't think of his name, the uh, president of South, North Korea, Kim Jong-il, uh, his son, is, is he over in school in Europe right now? Oh, he's done with school. We were talking about the fact that the predecessor to the is it the emperor? Is it the president? What's his position in North Korea? No one can help me with that. He's over North Korea. Okay, we know that. His son, the heir apparent, was literally in school in Europe. 
You can't get in North Korea, but guess what? You could go to that school in Europe. And you could influence that boy's life. Well, it might be a little late now. But the point is, let's get on the task. Let's be alerted. What's on God's face? Let's take this job seriously. This is what we're here for. But we're just running around like chickens with our heads cut off unless we start focusing on his face. He makes our time worthwhile down here. He's efficient with his saints. He has a job for us, but we're running around trying to figure it out because we're grabbing the heel of the flesh going, I think I can make this work. I got it by the tail. Instead of saying, God, I'm going to wait here until I get my assignment. What are you looking at? Because that's what I'm going to look at. Supplications for kings, presidents, cabinets, political counselors, dictators, ambassadors, at the hearts of the kings would be directed like a watercourse. The face of compassion. You see, God's not just a snarl. He's not just determined. He's not just a rock-like countenance. There's tears flowing down his face. It says Jesus wept. Shortest uh, verse in the Bible. Isn't that profound? Jesus, God, wept. Whoa. He cares. Despite all the news uh, headlines that say he doesn't, he cares. For God so loved that he gave. God cares. Look at his face and you'll see what he cares about. Compassion for the weak and vulnerable. And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. You want to serve your God. You want to serve your king. You look up at him and you say, I love you so much. And he says, then follow my gaze. That's what I care about. They're like, oh yeah, but I just want to worship you. I just want to say thank you. He says, show your love by looking where I'm looking. You want to do something unto me? Start there. You see, we want to do something unto him our own way. Our heel-grabbing way. There's nothing wrong with singing a love song to Jesus Christ. Nothing. But when his eyes are looking this way, and he says, don't overlook the little one. That's where we must look. And that's how we do it unto him. Compassion for rescue to be brought. Comfort to be gained. Freedom to be obtained. Adoptive families to be readied. Compassion to see the rescue workers required for such divinely heroic labor to be empowered and engraced. And that their example would lead to many more rescuers to be raised up and sent forth. Five. The face of travail. Travail for the great bending of the church. Now, travail is a birth term. When a woman is in labor to deliver a child, it's called travail. And there's different degrees of travail, too. You have a spot right before the baby is born that's called transition. And it is a greater degree of difficulty and pain than any other spot in the birth process. I want you to realize this isn't a term I came up with. This is the term that Paul applies to praying. Praying. When you see God's face, there's a face of travail. Don't let go. There's an agony. A guess. I was going to make up a word I used a couple weeks. Gethsemanic agony from Gethsemane. Okay, you like my word? It's a really hard one to say though. So it's an agony of Gethsemane. God cares. He's carrying a weight. Are you willing to carry the weight that you see him carrying? God, share it with me. Share it with me. I see it on your face. I see the grimace. I see the travail. Share it with me. It's a burden. No one in their right mind who's living for comfort on this earth would ever ask for it. But those of us that behold our king's face must have it. I must share that with you. I must share in your sufferings. Please, share it with me. 
travail for the great bending of the church. Remember the, if any of you have ever studied the Welsh Revival, the famous statement was, Lord, bend us. Lord, bend us. And then it became personalized. Lord, bend me. Lord, bend me. Lord, bend us. We must see the church stirred, awakened, empowered. It's a face of travail because it's not going to be easy. To get the church back on its feet, to see it where it ought to be, means some of us may need to shed our blood. It's on his face. Just look at it. You'll see it. Acts 4. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God. They were told not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. Otherwise, they would be persecuted. They would be scourged. Terrible things would happen to them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thy hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of the holy, thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. That's not a scripture reference for charismatic Pentecostals. It's for the church of Jesus Christ. We need what is in that scripture. When they threaten us and say, silence, we say, give us boldness. We don't say, yes, sir. We say, give us boldness. We stare in the face of God and what's he saying? Speak. Speak. We need power. The church of Jesus Christ cannot live off its own strength out of its own well. We need strength that's of another realm. The only way to get that is to go to his face. It's the same way Jacob got it. We need to be Israel once again. Travail for the church to once again sigh and cry over the abominations of sin. Travail to see the church readied by the Holy Spirit to be the selfless, humble, loving instrument of God in this age. Travail for revival of spiritual power, renewal of passion for truth, and reformation of churches, marriages, families, cultures, and nations. Travail for a boldness to proclaim the gospel, a willingness to die for the gospel, and a power to do great and mighty wonders as an evidence of the truthfulness of the gospel. I've told the people at Ellerslie many times, I'm not a signs and wonders guy. It's not like I wake up in the morning and go, oh, I just love to see a sign and wonder. I believe in my God and I don't need a sign and wonder to believe it. However, that's God's business. He's the one that says signs and wonders will follow. I didn't come up with it. I don't need them. In fact, it would be a lot easier if he didn't say that. However, we better have an evidence of the power of God backing us as the church. Otherwise, this world will say, what do you have but an opinion? We're not just an opinion. We're the representatives of the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of power. We don't win by might or by natural earthly power. We win by the spirit of almighty God. Exhibiting himself in and through his saints in his church. Six, the face of happy assurance. Sometimes you look up at the face of God. You know what's on his face? Big grin. It's done. It's done. It's done? Well, it's not done down here in the natural realm. Look up at his face. It tells you the story. It's done. It's accomplished. You need to walk now in faith and confidence that it's done. Now, there are certain things where we look up heavenward and he just says, just ask. 
Just ask. You see, you haven't been asking, Eric. I'd love to give it to you, but you don't ask. Ask. He's happy. He's not mad. There's an assurance in his face. I'm going to give it to you. And so when we pray, what do we pray with? Happy assurance. God, I'm just going to bring this to you. I know it seems so petty to me, but to you it matters. I need this. And I know it matters to you. It's on your heart. I can see it on your face. Could, could you do this for my family? Could you change this circumstance? Could you add a couple bucks to my bank account? You know, I need some food today. God cares. You see, it's not just the global things. God is a global God, right? It's an extraordinary thing when you look at his face and he's not looking over here, he's not looking over here, he's actually looking right at you. You're like, me? He goes, I care about you. Well, what? Me? I, I feel selfish praying for me. He says, I'm praying for you. Can you articulate it? Can you ask, Eric? God, I don't want to take up your time. Don't worry, Eric. My time is all yours. Happy assurance. We need to see that face more often. But we need to see God's face. Some of us never even look at it. We're, we need an about face. We've been staring at the flesh, trying to figure out how we can live Christianity in our own life instead of staring at him. That's where our assurance comes from. That's where our confidence comes from. Assurance that God will care for that which is within our range. A range is your jurisdictional territory, your territory of responsibility. You have been given a responsibility. Some of us, it's just our own life. We don't have a lot, but we have a family. And we're responsible for praying for them, for showing honor to them. There's things we're supposed to do. We need strength for that. But then some of us have a bigger range. It keeps expanding. My range keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And guess what? I'm responsible for that. But I also have a happy assurance that God is really the one responsible. And if I bring it to him, he's going to take care of those within my range. He does. It's extraordinary. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. And when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not you therefore like unto them. This is Jesus speaking. For your Father knows what things you have need of before you ask Him. You look up to heaven, you see His face, and He goes, I know. (laughs) I've known for a long time that you need that. Just ask. God cares. It's shocking when you see it. But you have to look at His face. His big business in this life is not just caring for your bank account, okay? He has bigger fish to fry than that. He has a lost world that's dying. However, he's not going to overlook you in the process. He takes care of your little petty, seemingly petty, needs. And then he also deals with turning the nations on their head. Same God, same afternoon. He's quite a guy. Happy assurance for that which is obvious and needful in your life. Happy assurance for those things which are close, near, and dear. Happy assurance for personal family, friends, and ministry, as well as the family, friends, and ministries of those around you. Happy assurance for personal bank accounts, bills, and endeavors, as well as the bank accounts, bills, and endeavors of those around you. You see, this isn't just your bank account. This is also the bank account of those around you. See, that matters to God. and you're, You're the one that's seeing his face. They might not see his face, but you see it. And you see him looking over at their bank account. And you're like, you know what? Help them. Help that bank account. And God might say, you're like, what about my bank account? He's saying, you know what? I'm looking at their bank account right now. Can you trust me with your bank account by looking at theirs? See, God has all sorts of strategies uh, to make it very clear to us how his kingdom works. Happy assurance for your own personal health and the health of those around you. Difficulty. Typically, we would describe that as a very bad word. I mean, difficulty. What kind of positive 
spin can you get out of that? Isn't it funny how God takes some of the worst concepts in all of life and he turns them into the brightest moments in the Bible? That's what he does. For whatever reason, our reasoning and our thinking is backwards from God's. So the word difficulty, can't you just expect it? The word difficulty to us as Christians is supposed to be a positive word. Oh, difficulty. Oh, can I have some of that gun? Now, we don't seek out difficulty. Don't get me wrong. Difficulty just comes. Okay? We're on this earth, and this is how it works. We will have difficulty. So we don't need to seek it. There's no need to. It's just going to be there. It's sort of like sunshine. It's just there. Difficulty is just sort of there. But let's look at this. That which turns us to prayer is that which turns us to God. Difficulty, you see, when a challenge comes in your life, weakness comes in your life, suffering comes into your life, a trial comes into your life, what do you turn to in that weakness? In that point of need, what do you turn to? Some of us don't turn to prayer. Some of us turn to a natural solution. We brainstorm. We come up with something or the medicine cabinet, whatever it is. Shop, eat. We have something we turn to. Therefore, difficulty never gains a positive spin because our solution fails us. It doesn't solve the issue. But God says, let's get this reset. Let's reformat the way we're doing this. When difficulty comes, turn to prayer. Turn to me. Turn to my face. Grab a hold of me. And guess what? Esau will part and let you through. You know, that's what happened the next day. Here's Jacob, already weak. Now he has a limp. And guess what? Esau makes way. Parts. And Jacob, his wife and children and cattle, they move on into the promised land without any hindrance. How did that happen? Well, it was God. You see, you grab a hold of God, you see his face, you find Peniel in your life, and suddenly all that has opposed you, all that has hindered you from living that life, and having that blessing that you know you're supposed to have in your soul as a Christian, suddenly solved. So difficulty, that which turns us to prayer. Can you think of anything better to turn you to prayer than difficulty? This is actually positive. Oh, good, thank you, God. I get to turn to prayer. Now, hopefully you can learn to turn to prayer without difficulty, too. It's always a nice thing. But you know what? This only drives us deeper to our knees. I've asked God more than a few times. It's like, my prayer life is not sharp right now, God. It's not that I don't want it to be. It's just not sharp. And I've noticed, God, and I don't really want to say this out loud to you, but I notice that my prayer life is always the sharpest when I'm in the most difficult of situations. I'm not really saying that I want a difficult situation. Could you somehow make me sharp without it? Okay, that's my negotiating with God. You know, and I'm willing to, I'll accept my difficult situations with a smile, okay? But I'm human like you. I'm not seeking them. However, I want to have a better attitude, even than I have now, because I have a good attitude towards my difficulty. I want even a better one. God, could I have a difficulty today? I would really like to, to be pressed to my knees to see your kingdom agenda accomplished. Here's our scripture from 2 Corinthians. I just want to meditate upon this as we're finishing. As the sufferings of Christ abound, which means, okay, abound is the same word you'll see at the very end here, but it means to increase, overflow, and exceed all expectation and measurement. So that's not a good sounding thing, is it? As the sufferings of Christ increase, overflow, and exceed all expectation and measurement in us, boy, so our encouragement, instruction, and strength also increases, overflows, and exceeds all expectation and measurement by Christ. There's no downside here. It doesn't matter how bad it gets in this world. Guess what? 
The greater the difficulty, the greater the consolation. The greater the strength, the greater the encouragement, the greater the instruction that flows out of it. You have more of Jesus. No matter what they do, you have more of Jesus. There's no downside. You just have to see it. You see it on his face. He's smiling. Difficulty comes, you look straight into his face and he goes, more of it. More of me. Do you want it? I do. Rejoice. Rejoice in this moment. Consider yourself exceeding glad. All right. I'm exceeding glad. And everyone around you, all the rescue workers are like, what in the world's wrong with this guy? Praise God. This is working a greater depth of Christ in me. And as a result, I'll have more to give of Christ to this world. Yeah. Conclusion. The increase of suffering, difficulty, trial, weakness, and persecution equals the increase of Christ's encouragement, instruction, and strength. As the sufferings of Christ abound, so the face of God becomes more intimately familiar, cherished, and known. You know, as you begin to turn to the face of God in every challenge, every difficulty, guess what? The more difficulties you get, what are you spending more time looking at? The face of God. You're getting to know every curvature of it. You know when he's smiling. You know what he's thinking. I know that God. How do you know him so well, Eric? I have a lot of difficulty in my life. And I'm spending a lot of time staring into his face. This is life abundant. I know it sounds backwards. But this is what you find when you're sitting in a chair with no strength, staring up at the ceiling, and God reminds you. What have you been studying, Eric? Oh, yeah. Do it. And I'll show you how this works. It works. That's where we want to be looking. The face of God. Father. Thank you that you are not just some emotionless void out there. Some energy or power without personality. Thank you that you are a person. That you do care. That you do have expression even. And that we can discern that expression. And we can know you intimately. And we can share in your sufferings. And we can draw closer to you. No matter what happens in our life, we draw closer. And I say thank you for such a privilege. Thank you for weakness. It's a strange thing to say thank you for, but thank you. Thank you for the weakness I had yesterday in my body. Thank you for the weakness I've had today. Because I'm learning and I'm more intimately familiar with the contour of your countenance than I ever have been in my life. There's no downside to the, for the saints of God. In any circumstance, in any situation, there's always the increase and the further abounding of Christ beyond measure in us. We love you. We praise the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. 
Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.